Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel discusses big changes with buprenorphine prescribing for opioid use disorder. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Gastala from the University of Illinois Chicago and Miles Square Health Center. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on February 21st, 2023. And now, the CE Information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. None of the speakers have anything to disclose. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. We're talking about this now because you'll see big changes in prescribing buprenorphine for opioid use disorder as federal law eliminates the ex-DEA number requirement. And so, Nicole, we're so glad to have you here with us. And to get us started, um, could you just give us some brief background on how the FDA-DEA waiver has limited buprenorphine access for patients with opioid use disorder? Absolutely. So one of the challenges was prior uh, to the this the X waiver was required in order to prescribe buprenorphine for patients. And you had to undergo an eight hour training for an MD or DO or 24 hours of training for an NP or PA. And then uh, request a special uh, SAMHSA waiver and then it would get added to your DEA. The challenges is the required um, education for this was a big barrier. Also an additional barrier was the number of patients you could prescribe for. um, if you um, were on, you could only prescribe for up to a certain amount. And if you wanted to do more than that, then you had to re- uh, request an exemption up to 275. So it really limited uh, the amount of patients you could prescribe as well. Well, thanks for that uh, brief introduction, Nicole. And so now let's talk about what are the changes to buprenorphine prescribing um, that have just recently been announced for opioid use disorder. Can you give us a, a brief overview of those? Absolutely. So what happened was is that um, previously you would need to have this special X waiver that is not required anymore as long as you have your standard DEA number and you're able to prescribe um, for Schedule 2, you'll be able to get um, that medication for patients. Another really important point is that there's no limit on the number of patients a prescriber can treat. And this has been such an important uh, step for uh, providers in order to be able to treat patients. And Nicole, so with the removal of the X number uh, that would be on prescriptions, so I guess for our community pharmacists out there, I guess they will, we should, they should expect to no longer see that X number on prescriptions, or do you think they'll still see it for a while until sort of everybody catches up with the changes? 
Yeah, I think though for the uh, individuals or clinicians who still have it, you may see it on there, especially because it takes EMRs a little bit of time to get reconfigured. Uh, even our own EMR at the university um, had a stop uh, gap that would require you to put in an X number prior to it being sent to the pharmacy. And we had to request IT to make that change. So you probably see it um, still. Um, of course, for some uh, prescribers, but don't expect or require it from any prescriber who has a DEA um, a license from now on. So I would, it'd be really important that clinical pharmacists don't limit uh, the prescribing. Okay, very good point, very good point. So um, if we just take the next step then to talk about why these waivers are, why the waiver is has been removed and of course the increasing uh, number of uh, patients that prescribers can take care of. Um, we state in our article, of course, that the goal is to improve access uh, because despite some of these requirements being lifted, um, Nicole, there still is a disparity out there and you know many patients still lack access to prescribers for opioid use disorder. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, that's been one of the biggest challenges um, is, you know, enough prescribers who have that X waiver now that this has been lifted, really anyone um, who has a DEA can prescribe. The thing that we're still going to struggle with is really getting um, prescribers up to speed on how to do appropriate initiation and stabilization on buprenorphine to really mitigate that um, effect of a precipitated withdrawal if the patient takes it too soon um, mm -hmm. from using opioids. So that still be a challenge and of course always stigma uh, that's a big uh, barrier that we always have to address and so as we sort of think about these new changes and rolling it out um, it's really important that we all sort of look at opioid use disorder like a chronic condition like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and any other condition retreat in the hospital er or outpatient setting uh, thanks for that overview and sort of for bringing in the other factors that have um, you know, decreased access or maybe not led all practices to adopt prescribing of buprenorphine. And so, Andrea, I wanted to hear from you now. Um, I'm curious first if if you all have been talking in your residency program about the removal of the X waiver and if that's sort of moving the the um, moving the decision to adopt prescribing in your in your residency program for buprenorphine. Yeah, we've been talking about this for the last year or so. One of my partners has a special interest and has really taken um, uh, the lead in helping all of us increase our knowledge in this area. Um, we have all of our residents complete the eight hours of training in their first year, even though they no longer are required to do so um, as part of a uh, family medicine rotation. Um, it's really been an interesting journey for us. I think my one partner is the most comfortable. Um, and, I, you know, I think that thinking about this through the lens of both implicit and explicit bias um, is really important and has been a conversation that we've had to have in our in our residency program. And also that fear that uh, Nicole was referring to of not doing it right and actually causing some harm by precipitating withdrawal. And I think that that bias as well as that 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 concern about causing harm, which doesn't make much sense when you think about it, right? Somebody is asking for help, has a, a, a habit or a, a disorder that is harmful to them, and we should be working to mitigate that. So um, I've got one partner who's prescribing. I ref do refills for his patients, and that's about as far as we've gone so far. 
Okay, I I love that point that you just made. I think is so valid too that you know we're worried about precipitating withdrawal um, when you know there's the risk of of the risk associated with precipitating withdrawal is low compared to the risk of use of of opioids. So great great points, and I'm glad to hear there's been some adoption there and I think we are seeing more and more practices become more comfortable with doing this and we do want to talk about initiation of therapy and um, you know how we can help folks feel more comfortable with that and so Craig I just wanted to ask you also if you're seeing any movement in terms of um, uptake in prescribing of buprenorphine in, in your facility. Yeah, but it really not because of this and I mean in the hospital side it's been less of an issue in the family medicine group that I work with has quite a few people who have been certified. So it's, it's finding someone to follow up on the outpatient side has not been a problem for some time, but this will still help and open up and I hope stimulate more discussions in the hospital because it will mm -hmm. be easier to find someone to follow up once they leave. And I would just I'd second your comment, Larry, about revisiting the idea of initiation in this article, because I think that is a yes. big barrier mm -hmm. to clinicians who definitely don't, don't have experience in this area. Okay, very good. And Andy, I'm curious, are you seeing any movement in your facility in terms of inpatient prescribing of buprenorphine or, you know, maybe it starts in the emergency department, et cetera? So we're pretty fortunate that we have a, an addiction service. And I would say for my hospice colleagues, probably 95% are just asking the addiction docs to do this, which is nice because they automatically also have some follow-up in the outpatient mm -hmm. arena. Um, okay. I have a, a slightly, I actually use this more in the uh, uh, in the outpatient arena in my street medicine practice. Um, and, and honestly, I'd love to hear from our expert on this, but I'm I'm really not as worried, and maybe I should be, but not as worried about causing some precipitated withdrawal. My patients know exactly what it feels like, and the risks are on the lower side, so I'm, I, I don't get that excited about it. Maybe I should be more excited about it. Dr. Costello, if you want to comment. No, I think you're exactly right. We shouldn't be getting excited. It was just one of those sort of, I would say, fears that uh, clinicians would have. Oh, I need this special X waiver because I, you know, we may cause this sort of problem. Um, but I agree with you. Uh, most of the patients, as long as you have a discussion with them, just like when you start any medication, right? About when do you take it? How do you take it? Uh, most patients have actually tried it before. Um, and some yes. will tell you that they're allergic to it, and that's because mm -hmm. they may have borrowed from a friend and taken yes. it too soon. And, and that's a great educational opportunity for the patient to say, you know, you probably weren't allergic. Probably that withdrawal feelings or nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that you were getting was probably related just to taking it so soon. Let's just so let's just make sure that you're in, you know, real withdrawal. And I always tell patients, you know, wait as long as you can and then wait one more hour. And then, you know, then start. Um, and I think that that is really the, the best way and just having that open and honest discussion, because the reality is that, you know, every time an individual uses, especially illicit uh, substance, they're at risk of overdose. And, and buprenorphine yes. is incredibly safe. Uh, medication compared to that. And so I think it's something that we in the medication community, pharmacists, clinicians really need to address with our colleagues, like, please don't be scared of this medication. You can use it, it's safe, and it's really going to reduce morbidity and mortality. And I would add, many of my patients have gotten this on the street on their own, so they know exactly what it does, because uh, they borrowed it from a friend or they bought it from somebody. Hmm. Um, uh, 
Uh, one other question, uh, just while I'm there, um, uh, microdosing. I've heard some people talk about yes. this for patients on fentanyl. Was that something we we're going to comment on? But because I'd like to hear. I do want to bring that up. Yes, let's let's hang on to that because I want to talk okay. about a few things related to induction first, um, and then I do want to hear um, some tips about microdosing. But I, I really uh, I think the points that you've just discussed are really helpful, and um, we we could uh, maybe expand on our wording. We do say the goal is to avoid precipitating withdrawal and to find the dose that relieves symptoms without causing sedation. And I think that's, you know, makes sense, uh, Nicole, but we might could we might be able to add some more there to say, you know, about um, the lack of harm associated with buprenorphine or the safety of buprenorphine versus the risks. I'm just wondering if you would, um, you know, be in favor of a little bit more there. I think so. I think it'd be really helpful to um, address some of those concerns for providers and, and clinicians. It can just be, I think, a little bit sort of nerve wracking, um, but really just explaining like this is a you know partial agonist. Here's how the medication works. Um, and if you precipitate a withdrawal, how do you treat it? Well, the best thing is to give more buprenorphine, right? Um, and so you actually treat it by giving more of that medication. And yeah, the patient may not feel great for a few hours, but after they get you know enough doses, they're gonna they're gonna overcome that um, with uh, precipitated withdrawal. And so, and again, the most important goal is you know medication stabilization. Detox is not you know really recommended for opioid use disorder. Okay, great points. Um, we do have some wording in here too that I think uh, everybody is probably familiar with is that there are different ways that initiation can be done. It can be done in the patient's home, it can be done in the prescriber's office or in the ED or the hospital. And so in our quick start guide that um, we offer with um, the uh, uh, the clinical resource that you see there, management of opioid use disorder, we have some tips on sort of ways to start in each of those areas. So. I'm going to skip through that part because I do really want to talk about how you do, how we um, do initiate buprenorphine and um, share, Nicole, some of the tips that you have shared already about waiting one more hour um, and, and how, you would, uh, how you would teach prescribers and pharmacists about how to initiate buprenorphine in this setting. So could you walk us through an example? Absolutely. So very first thing I would say is always ask the patient, have you taken this before? And if you did, how did you take it? How did it go? And what dose did you feel that um, was comfortable for you? The goal of the induction is to get the patient to a stable dose, you know, within that first day, hopefully. And the goal is really to address cravings and withdrawal. So there's different sort of protocols out there. You're going to see fast start protocols. You're going to see this example protocol. You're going to see micro inductions. There's lots of different ways that you can do it. But the first thing I would always recommend doing is asking the patient if they've done it before and how they've done it and how that went. And then you can uh, tweak it from there for that patient, just like you would a patient who you're titrating their insulin for. And so you can start, um, you really want them to stop any short-acting opioids at least 12 hours prior to starting buprenorphine. Sometimes patients um, who use illicit opioids, there's a, quite a bit of fentanyl. Fentanyl will stay in their system a little bit uh, longer. And so that can be, you know, a little bit of a challenge. So it sometimes might be longer than 12 hours. You want them to start with 
two to four milligrams if they um, feel better, not worse, um, but still aren't quite, you know, feeling like their normal selves. You can get up to at the FDA says you can get up to 12 milligrams on day one and then generally 16 milligrams for most patients thereafter. Again, the protocols sort of vary, but that is what the FDA recommends. Many patients are going to get to 16, especially if they have a really high uh, illicit drug use on the first day. Um, but that's just from sort of practical experience. And patients know their bodies. And again, you're having them titrate to feeling those withdrawal and cravings being controlled, withdrawal being the first uh, sort of uh, point that you're reaching. Cravings can sometimes take a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got a lot of um, chat chatter going on with our panelists on the side here, which are great points I wanted to bring up. Andy um, makes the point that the biggest risk with precipitating withdrawal is that the patient won't want to try it again. Um, and so I wondered if you could comment on, on that, Nicole. I Sorry, think yeah. that, that is a really great point. Um, and there's a lot of fear um, with patients, right, about they don't want the reason why patients continue to use, right? They use initially to feel high, to forget, you know, to um, to feel better, right? You know, treat whatever they're trying to treat, whether that's emotional pain or physical pain. And then after a period of time, they use just to feel normal. Now, the challenge is, is they use so that they don't get sick. And if you give them a medicine that makes them feel sick, then of course, they're naturally going to be scared of restarting it. And that is the biggest thing. And so that's where education becomes so important. And it doesn't and like you said before, it can be done inpatient, outpatient, home induction, office induction, whatever is going to work best for the patient. And this is where you really need to give the patient agency and have that shared decision making and do that education about okay, where's the best place? Here's what you're going to look for. We if you do end up precipitating, you know, withdrawal, why don't we have some meds on hand? What is the biggest symptom that you have when you have withdrawal that really bothers you the most? Some people it's nausea, some people it's diarrhea and you can add that symptomatic management on top of it to really support them during that process. But of course, the goal is to not, you know, precipitate withdrawal, but it does happen occasionally. Okay, great points. And I want to come back to Andy's question again now about microdosing. And uh, so we have not written specifically about microdosing um, and um, because I think it's, uh, well, it's, it's a lot to fit into a short article. So we've focused on sort of the more traditional approaches. But Nicole, can you talk about, you know, a little bit about it and when you would consider microdosing? Yeah, I think microdosing is incredibly helpful for patients who are um, dependent or addicted on um opioids that are prescribed because it's much easier to titrate up uh, when you're microdosing. So doing very small amounts of buprenorphine as you decrease their um, full agonist opioids. It's much more challenging to do when an individual has an illicit drug supply because you don't know what's in it, you don't know how long, and then you're somewhat kind of encouraging them to continue to use while you're dosing them up. So that can be a little bit of a challenge to sort of you know, figure out um, the best way uh, to do that. But, you know, I, I also have done, you know, do street medicine too. And, um, and the thing is, is you have to work with the patient in front of you and what they're willing, you know, willing to do. And just like any patient, some patients are not going to take buprenorphine every day. Some patients are going to use it as a harm reduction and decrease their use versus 
you know, complete cessation of use. And that might be a really big step for them and a life-saving step, right? We're moving that, you know, that notch in terms of of improving morbidity and mortality and helping support them in their recovery, whatever they see that recovery being, whether it's cessation of use or reduction in use. So Lori, can I ask real quick? Yes. This might be my oversimplification, but my understanding of microdosing was if they're not having withdrawal symptoms, you don't know what's in the system, that's a safe way to initiate. But is that an oversimplified reason of why that's the only time you really think about microdosing in the hospital setting? Well, microdosing, so say the patients um, in the hospital setting, you could do it if they've been on opioids for a really long time and the patient doesn't want to go through withdrawal, you can do microdosing during that time. So you can titrate them up over a few weeks as you titrate down on their full agonist, depending on which protocol you're looking at. So that is a way that you can do that so that they don't necessarily like feel it, so to speak. I've done it for patients with sickle cell who've wanted to transition to buprenorphine over continuing to be on full agonists. I've also done it for uh, patients who have had co-occurring cancer who wanted to switch, but also had OUD and wanted some help with their craving control. Uh, So it really just depends on the patient. If we don't have them on any opiates and we're not sure what's in their system and they're not in withdrawal, again, that's typically when we've thought about this versus just starting the two formula that was on the Yeah, you can absolutely do that. That's absolutely possible too. Okay, great points. And Andrea, I, I wanted to call on you. You've just shared a, another excellent point in our chat box about our wording, which we say here about where to initiate buprenorphine for OUD. And that slide says, be aware initiation can be done in the patient's home, your office, the ED, or the hospital. And so could you share your comment about that wording? Yeah, I just was hoping we could remove that phrase, be aware. When I read that, I kind of thought, am I supposed to be more cautious or am I merely supposed to be informed? And, you know, it, it, particularly as we go on with this discussion, I think we're trying to really remove barriers to care rather than place limits. And so um, that would be just a wordsmithing uh, yes. thing to, to do. Excellent point, and one of the great reasons that we share our specific language uh, on this webinar to. Uh, help all of our viewers out there and our subscribers understand how we come to our recommendations. So I appreciate that. Great point. And um, Nicole, I wanted to also ask you about the quote max dose. And I know we've talked about this on several webinars before and in all of our articles. And we we make the point to aim for a maintenance dose of about 16 milligrams per day. And there are, of course, windows beyond that. And we've also heard that some insurers will pay for more than 16 milligrams a day. And so what is your experience with the usual maintenance dose of buprenorphine? For the majority of my patients, they are on 16 milligrams a day. Some require a little bit more at 24, especially if they've got co-occurring pain and I'm dosing it a little bit differently. Um, you can, you know, dose it every six hours and split the dosing if they have co-occurring pain, which, you know, happens as individuals age or, you know, they may be experiencing like post-traumatic uh, injuries or problems. And so you can use it, you know, for both of those reasons. But most patients end up around between 16 and 24. There are individuals who require less. They tend to have not used, you know, quite as much and can be stable in a lower dose, but most patients are at 16 milligrams. Okay. Let's um, talk about 
that maintenance phase a little bit more and I guess chronic use. And so Nicole, we do make the point in our article to plan to continue buprenorphine naloxone long-term. There's no quote max time limit for continuing treatment. And this you know, goes back to your previous statement about treating it like a chronic condition. And so if you can comment on that phrase and the evidence to support continuing long-term use to maintain abstinence. Yeah, I love that you guys compared it to chronic conditions such as cardiovascular disease or hypertension or diabetes. We would not just sort of willy-nilly remove someone from their metformin just because they took it for one year, right? Uh, mm. So the same thing is really important with buprenorphine on naloxone because you want to be conscientious that the patient has the highest risk of relapse during the tapering phase or when they're off of it, right? And when they relapse, there's a very high risk of, you know, accidental overdose in that time period. So really the best recommendation, as long as the patient is doing well on the medication, doesn't have any side effects, and there's really no contraindication, you should continue it because the risks of relapse and what could potentially happen if they resume illicit uh, drug use is, is pretty high in terms of, again, morbidity and mortality. And so that's sort of the discussion I have with patients. And then I do a deeper dive. Well, why do you think you need to stop this medication? And, you know, a lot of it comes down to they feel bad or there's societal stigma or their family is pressuring them. And then I say, okay, well, let's talk about what the evidence shows. And let's really, you know, take a deep dive into that so you can understand the risks and benefits of staying on the medication versus off so that you can make an informed decision for what is best for you. And we are getting some audience questions around this, Nicole, people asking if we should be recommending that once people are stable that you taper down on the dose. And I think it's probably similar to what we were just saying about treating it like a chronic condition. We generally maintain the dose that was effective and just wondering if you can comment on tapering with chronic use or sticking with this, the dose that was, was found to be effective for that patient? Yeah, you're going to actually want to keep with the dose that is effective. Um, if you, anytime you sort of taper, there's a risk that cravings or withdrawal could return, and then that puts them at risk of lapsing, right? And so it's really important actually just to continue them on what's working for them. Um, if they are starting to feel, you know, somewhat sedated or if they're having some side effects, um, constipation, and you want to think about changing the dose, you can. But I wouldn't just sort of arbitrarily do it just because they've been on it for an X amount of time and just want to decrease it, you know, just to decrease, because then you have to think, well, what are we actually trying to do, right? We're trying to stabilize this person on the most effective dose for them. And by decreasing it, what are we changing, right? Mm -hmm. Just quote, unquote, the amount they're on, but that it's not really going to change the side effects or risks for them. Okay, great points. Uh, the last question I have is, um, we're getting some questions come in about what will be the educational requirements for uh, folks who are prescribing buprenorphine. I don't think that's been necessarily delineated yet, uh, but I'm wondering if you have any insight on how that might change with these new changes, Nicole. I wish I did, but they did say that they were going to let everyone know during the summer. I imagine mm -hmm going to be related to opioid prescribing in general, OUD in general, and then specifically about, you know, medications for opioid use disorder. So um, that's what I'm hopeful that it's going to be more all-inclusive and really address, you know, inappropriate 
you know, tapering for opioids and also safe tapering, right, versus quick stopping um, so that we don't have as much of this, you know, illicit transition for patients, right? And um, hopefully doing some, you know, great education on uh, trauma um, and the importance of screening, right, for uh, substance use disorders. Something that comes up a lot where there's, I think, more opinions and science is the patient breaks a femur and needs surgery and they're on their 16 or 24 of buprenorphine, how you handle this in the setting of possibly needing full agonists for yes. acute pain. Yeah, that is an excellent question. And don't stop it, whether they're on methadone or buprenorphine. If you stop their medications for opioid use disorder, you actually create an opioid deficit. And so that ends up being really challenging and you're going to end up needing more um, opioids and sedation coverage during surgery and after. And there's a great study that was done uh, in an anesthesia journal uh, actually related to that. So the standard of care is, you know, don't stop their medication, just continue it. Either way, you're going to to have to address their pain a little bit differently because they have, you know, a higher opioid tolerance than the patients who are not uh, using opioids regularly. Um, however, if you actually take that off, then you are really going to uh, create a deficit and make pain control much harder. And is continuing their outpatient dose the right answer as opposed to? Yes, can keep their outpatient dose of methadone and buprenorphine exactly the same. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.